0: I encourage you to take some extra, we just want to welcome you and thank you for coming. In fact, next week, next Friday after the service at 12 p.m., we'll have a newcomer lunch. So if you feel new to the church, whether this is your first time or you've been here for several months, please join us in the annex outside those doors after the service next Friday for a lunch. There's no sign-up that's necessary. Join us to meet some of the elders and staff of the church and to meet others that are new to our community Uh, Here at redeemer one week from today and it's good timing because in two weeks We'll start a new round of our redeemer classes at 9 a.m And we'll relaunch or start again our what is a healthy church membership class And so if you come next week's a newcomer class, it'll be a good stepping stone a good time uh, To get more acquainted to our church before that class starts And please don't forget to sign up for our global missions and the church conference with mark dever and john piper Uh, That's next month. You'll find more information in your bulletins. Well, as we humbly approach God's word now. Let us go to him in prayer. And ask him to bless our time. Let's pray. Well, Father we come to your word now. Asking you to change our lives. Father we ask you to revolutionize our marriages. To heal our brokenness. And to point us to Christ. Ignite faith in our hearts. Through the hearing of your word. And change us by the power of your Spirit. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. As I've mentioned over the past several weeks, we've been looking at the book of Genesis. More specifically, we've been looking at the creation of the world. We saw that Genesis started with a telescopic broad view of creation. We saw first that God is the sovereign creator of the entire cosmos from All the galaxies down to the small subatomic particles. And then we turned our lens a bit and we zoomed in a bit closer to see how God created. We read that God created in six days by the power of his word. That he spoke. And there was light and land. There was water and animals. And then the next week we turned the lens a bit more. We zoomed in even closer and saw the creation of humans. We saw that man was created in God's image to show the world what God was like. And then last week, again, we turned that lens and we had had a close-up look at how man was created and how he was given by God the first job. We also heard about the rest that we can have in Christ Jesus. Well, today we're about to exhaust the power of our camera lens because we're going to zoom in even closer to see the creation of woman and to look at the first marriage in the history of the world. We're going to see what marriage is, why marriage was instituted, and how we can honor God in our marriages today. And we'll be looking at that from Genesis chapter 2, verses 18 through 25 that Patrick just read for us. But let me give you the main point of the passage right up front. We're going to take this one main point. It's the overarching theme of the passage. And then we'll break it down into its three parts. And that'll serve as the structure of the sermon this morning. So let me give you the main point. And it's this. That marriage was God's idea to bring us joy and to display Christ's love for his church. Let me say that again. Marriage was God's idea to bring us joy and to display Christ's love for his church. We'll take that in three sections. So first, let's look at how marriage was God's idea. Verse 18, the Lord God said, it is not good for the man to be alone. I will make a helper suitable for him. Then down in verses 21 and 22. So the Lord God caused the man to fall into a deep sleep. And while he was sleeping, he took one of the man's ribs and then closed up the place with flesh. Then the Lord God made a woman from the rib he had taken out of man. And he brought her to the man. Now, even... Just a quick reading of this passage makes it crystal clear that marriage was God's idea. It was God's plan. It was God's initiative. He caused, he took, he made, he brought. It was all God. He's the inventor of marriage. And there are two things we notice in these verses about God's idea for marriage. First, we see that there's a pattern for marriage. There's a distinct pattern pattern that God sets forth for marriage. That marriage is to be between one man and one woman. Polygamy is not part of the pattern. And men are not supposed to marry men, and women are not supposed to marry women. There's no institution of homosexuality. In fact, the Bible repeatedly describes homosexuality as exchanging that which is natural for that which is unnatural. There's also no talk of divorce. Instead, there's actually talk of two becoming one flesh. The idea that what God has joined together, let no man separate. Marriage is a lifelong monogamous relationship between one man and one woman. That's God's pattern for marriage. And verse 25 says, they were both naked and not ashamed. Marriage was perfect in that day of those golden rays falling on that brilliant scene there in the garden. There was complete openness, complete candor. There's nothing to hide. There's no evil, no sin, no shame. This was God's pattern for marriage. Well, second thing we see regarding God's idea is that we see the need for marriage in our passage. So we see the pattern, but we see a need. Did you notice God's stunning words in these verses? In so far everything God created was good. God creates light, and it was good. God creates the sun, the moon, the stars, and they were good. He creates plants, good. Water, good. Animals, good. All of them were good. And remember what he says after he creates man? Says it was very good. But now all of a sudden, we're here in the garden with all this good creation, and for the first time, God says something that surprises us. Right? Verse 18, he says, it is not good. And what does he say is not good? He says, It's not good for man to be alone. See, all of a sudden there's something in the garden that's not good. Everything else so far was followed by a benediction. And now for the first time, we see a malediction. I mean, how could you be unhappy or unfulfilled in paradise? Well, there's only one possible answer. It's that God deliberately made man to need someone else besides him. Now, of course, our greatest need is God. But God made human beings, in some sense, to need one another. And the force of this malediction is actually even stronger than what we read upon first glance. See, there's a usual way in Hebrew of expressing a less than ideal situation. You can say a phrase that actually means it is lacking in goodness. But God doesn't use that phrase here. What he uses is highly emphatic It's not just the absence of something good, it's the presence of something terrible. It's as if God is shouting loudly, this is bad, this is terrible. Adam plus loneliness equals a real bad deal. It's what the text is saying. And so we see that God, he's kind, clearly anticipates the need. He knows the need. Nothing surprises God. He's sovereignly planned everything. But he does this in an interesting way have you wondered why God didn't just create Eve in the beginning? You know, Adam and Eve, here you go. We'll create you at the same time. Here's the garden. Be married. Well, it's fascinating. You know, instead, God makes this proclamation that it's very, very bad, and then he starts a parade. Did you see that? No, I like parades. They're fun. I like balloons and marching bands and floats and lots of people. Now, a parade is nice, but it seems a bizarre time for God to throw a parade. That's exactly what God does. He supernaturally summons a parade of animals from all people groups on the face of the earth, and he parades them past Adam. Have you wondered what that looked like? Just a long, single-file line, I'm assuming, down across the mountaintops with every animal species on the face of the earth just walking by Adam? Adam? You aardvarks and baboons and chimpanzees and dingoes and elephants and right down the line, just walking, marching past Adam. And he's evaluating them. Text says he looks at them, he evaluates them, and he names them. He says, you over there, you look kind of like a wallaby. You over there, you look like a kookaburra. And he gives them names until every single animal species walks by them. And by the end of it, by the end of all these animals walking together, it should have been obvious to Adam, well, wait, what, God, wait a minute. What about me? Where's, where's my friend? Where's someone like me? You know, it seems as though God put Adam in a place to discover on his own that he has a need for a partner. You know, I notice this whenever I'm in an incredible place without my wife, Gloria. I was seeing all these beautiful things on my trip to the Philippines this summer, and the whole time I wished Gloria was there with me to see Intramuros and Luneta Park. And I was eating all those incredible meals alone. Hello, hello, by myself. Sizzling chicken seasig, by myself. Jollibee Aloha burgers, plural, by myself. I mean, sure, Glenn was there, and I like Glenn. He's a good enough guy, but he's no Gloria Furman. I wanted to share a few bowls of hallow-hallow with her. God knows this, and he puts man into a deep sleep, and out of his rib, he creates woman. Surely, as you've studied these verses in your community groups this past week, you noticed and probably discussed the word used of the woman in verse 18. Did you observe that? The woman is called a helper. At first glance, maybe that seems a bit derogatory. What, a woman? Just a helper? Man's helper? Now let me show you that this couldn't be further from the truth. I mean, first of all, the majority of the uses of the word helper in our Bible is to describe God himself. Exodus 18, Exodus 33, 1 Samuel 7, Psalm chapter 20, Psalm 46, just to name a few. It appears that 16 out of the 19 uses in the Old Testament are to refer to God as Helper. And at times it's used to describe God serving as a military reinforcement. Here's this army, they've gone to battle and they're about to be defeated. They have no hope on their own. And then God comes in and not only helps them, but he defeats the army. He saves the day. This term helper means that the woman provides what is lacking in the man who can do what the man alone can't do. Now, there's nothing derogatory about needing help or about being a help, because the Almighty God created us this way to the praise and honor of his glory. Now, consider the tremendous dignity of which God has created both man and woman. And if we take the whole phrase, not just helper, but if we take the whole phrase, a helper fit for him, it literally means... Like opposite him, or according to his opposite. Now that, that's a bit strange. How can you be both like and opposite? But that's exactly what a woman is to a man as she compliments him. I mean, take two pieces of a puzzle for a minute. They won't fit together if they are identical. Now they have to not be different, but write different like, but opposite. And so this woman that God created would be a corresponding counterpart. As a counterpart, she would share in his nature, and as his matching opposite, she would supply what is lacking in him. Now, the function of the woman's relationship to man was complementary. Now, while man and woman are equal and complementary, there are different roles in marriage. We've looked at that before in 1 Peter chapter 3. The New Testament writers ground that truth back here in Genesis. Man was created first, and woman was created out of Adam, and she was created to be a helper. And so man is to be the head of the home. This does not denote superiority, but order. We see the same thing in the Trinity with Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. I think Matthew Henry's words say this best. He said, Woman was not made out of his head to top him, not out of his feet to be trampled upon by him, but out of his side to be equal with him. Under his arm to be protected, and near his heart to be beloved. You now a man and his wife equal with different roles. So we see that marriage was God's idea. There's a pattern to marriage and a need for marriage. Marriage was God's idea to bring us joy and to display Christ's love for his church. Well, let's move on and examine that second phrase then, that second part of our overarching statement that marriage is to bring us joy. Marriage is to bring us joy. I mean, look at Adam's response to his wife in verse 23 This is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, for she was taken out of man. I need to explain what's happening here or else we'll miss what's going on. This is the first piece of art in the Bible. It's poetry. It uses wordplay, rhyming, and chiastic structure. And we have here the first man, Adam, upon seeing his wife-to-be, explodes into poetry. Now the word there, now, it can also be translated, at last. Maybe some of your translations have that, or... Finally. It means he's been saying to his future wife, you have been who I've been looking for all my life. Now you could say, well, Adam, it hasn't really been a long life so far. (laughs) Well, that's true. But even in that short time in the garden, naming the chickens and the ducks, he's finally found what he's been looking for. And he explodes in a poem these, in fact, are Adam's only recorded words before the fall. And he's excited. He's excited he's about to get married. Let's think about it, too. This has been quite a day for Eve, hasn't it? I mean, she's had a big day. I mean, let's review. She got made. That's a big deal. She met God. It's big stuff. She goes to her wedding, and she meets the first person she's ever met. And she's told that, he's going to be her husband and that her marriage has been arranged by God. It's an arranged marriage. And the man at her wedding breaks out in song and poetry for her. I mean, this is an epic day for Eve, isn't it? A pretty epic day for Adam as well as he meets his bride. I mean, there was excitement. There was joy, anticipation. Happiness was in the air. This was a very, very good day. Now, if you're here and you're not a Christian, you don't follow Christ, this may be different from what you may have heard about Christianity. We Christians are not trying to deny pleasure. God created marriage for our enjoyment. It is to be appreciated. It is to be enjoyed. Marriage was God's idea to bring us joy. What's the problem? Is this indicative of all the marriages in the world? How about all the marriages in this room? How about your marriage? Maybe you're thinking, "Wait a minute. Wait a minute. Marriage is supposed to bring joy. But look at my life. My marriage is the greatest source of my pain. So why are so many of our marriages not a joyful union right now? Well, let me give us a few reasons for this. And I'll phrase them this way. I'll phrase them as three lies. Three lies that prove destructive for our marriages. The first lie... Is that we believe, first lie we believe is this I didn't marry the right person. I didn't marry the right person. See, there's this evil lie that the world feeds us that you have a soulmate. You have a soulmate out there somewhere, and you better not miss them, because if you do, you'll marry the wrong person. Now, we may not say it out loud. But deep down inside us, when times are tough, we feel like we married the wrong man or the wrong woman. That somewhere out there is a real soulmate, and we're still waiting for them to sweep us off our feet. Well, friends, I want to tell you something today. Because we're all sinners, you never marry the right person. And neither did your spouse. That's the truth. And you might say, well, I didn't think love would be this hard. Well, friends, nothing truly great comes easily. Why should we think that love between two sinners would come easy even for a day, much less a lifetime? Or maybe you're discouraged because your feelings have waned and you don't get those warm fuzzies anymore. They've kind of fizzled away. You start thinking, if only my spouse had the brains of an astronaut, the body of a beauty pageant champion, and the kindness of Mother Teresa. If only my spouse were like that, then I'd be happy. Then I'd be fulfilled. Then I'd have joy. Then life would be good. Now that's the right person. But that assumption overlooks a crucial aspect to marriage. It fails to appreciate that we are Always marry the wrong person. Now Tim Keller examines this in his great book on marriage called The Meaning of Marriage, which we have several copies of that book and other new titles on marriage, new for today on a bookstall that you might want to check out after the service. But in Keller's book, The Meaning of Marriage, he says this, We never know whom we marry. We just think we do. Or even if we first marry the right person, just give it a while and he or she will change. For marriage, being the enormous thing it is, means we are not the same person after we have entered it. The primary problem is learning how to love and care for the stranger to whom you find yourself married. That sounds a bit discouraging, but let me tell you what Keller is saying here. He's saying that marriage brings you into more intense proximity to another human being more so than any other relationship can. Therefore, the moment you marry someone, you and your spouse begin to change in profound ways. You can't know ahead of time what those changes will be. And so you don't know. You can't know who your spouse will actually be in the future until you get there. So it may be that the idea you have of marriage comes from Hollywood, Or Bollywood or some other place that has directors and actors and scriptwriters and rehearsals. But if this is your idea of what marriage is like, friend, I can understand. It's hard to see that dream die. But I promise you that God is about to resurrect a far better dream for marriage. So keep Hanging with me as we look through this passage, but let me speak for just a few minutes to the singles in the room. So those of those of you that aren't currently married, and first specifically, let me talk to the single men here, men who desire to be married one day. What is your idea of a wife? Those those of you single men sitting here, what is your idea of a wife? Does your idea of a godly wife does that match up with God's idea? Or does it match the world's idea? I want to tell you that there are a lot of godly, single women in this room right now. Women that love Jesus, women that love His church, women that are faithfully praying that God would use them as witnesses to the gospel in their homes, in the workplace, in their communities. Now, I know this isn't a matchmaking service, it's a worship service. I understand that. If you're a single man, you don't need to stand at the door and say hi and smile to all the single ladies on the way out today. Though that may not be a bad idea. It's not what I'm saying. No, single men, maybe as you submit to God's idea of marriage, then maybe God will do for you what he did for Adam and just put your future wife right in front of you so you can't miss her. Maybe right in your community group or in your ministry team or some other activity that you're involved in. Oh, friends, talk to godly older men in your life about your desire to be married. Get wise counsel. Get people to pray for you. Well, similar things could be said to the women here, to the single women in this room. Your picture of Mr. Right might be wrong. might be way off. Are you looking for your soulmate or are you looking for a godly man who will point you to Jesus? Are you noticing all the flaws in each single man you know? Like a metal detector that detects all the metal present. Are you like a flaw detector just picking up all the flaws of all the men in your life? We laugh because it's true, isn't it? the tendency of our hearts. No, friend, there is no right person to marry that will cause all of our earthly dreams to come true. They don't exist. Well, friends, if you're single here and considering marriage, please let the elders be involved. We we care for you. We want to pray for you. We want to help you in this pursuit. We want to walk alongside you. And we want to see singles in this church get engaged and married to the glory of God. We know that's not God's calling for everyone, but it is the calling for many, and we want to be a part of that with you. Well, let's move on to the second lie that threatens to destroy marriages and rob us of joy. It's the lie that says, My parents are more important to me than my spouse. My parents, my family, it's more important to me than my spouse. This is a lie that's not often vocalized, and yet many of us have believed it. We prioritize parents over spouse. But notice what God says in Genesis 2, verse 24. That is why a man leaves his father and mother and is united to his wife, and they become one flesh. God tells married couples to leave their parents. Now, Adam and Eve were probably the only couple in the history of the universe to not have any in-law challenges. Right, pure bliss, no (laughs) in-laws. Lucky them. (laughs) But what does God mean when he tells them to leave? Does this mean that one can't care for their elderly parents and bring them in the home to look after them in their latter years? When we think of the word "leave," we picture a man moving out of his house and setting up a house elsewhere. But in fact, Israelite marriage was usually patrilocal, which means the man continued to live in or near his parents' house after marriage. It was the wife who actually left to join her husband. This is what what would happen: a man would go off to the village, would propose to the woman, to propose to his wife, and then he would leave her after the engagement. And he would go, usually build onto his father's house. Maybe another section of the house on the same property. And then once that's done, they'd have the wedding. And he'd bring his new wife into his new house. This is still the pattern today in many Middle Eastern communities. So it's hard to think that geographic location is what God is talking about here. This has never been enforced. It's never been the understanding. Now a better understanding of the word is to forsake. To think of leaving as forsaking. In many ways, it's an even stronger word. Now, the p- point is that before marriage, the man's first obligations are to his parents. But afterwards, they are to his wife. See, many of our cultures where honoring parents is such a high obligation, this remark about leaving and forsaking, it's stunning, it's striking to us. Now this is not to say that we are to dishonor our parents. No, the Bible is clear we should honor our father And our mother. But what it clearly does mean is that man's obligation and loyalties are to his wife, and that a wife's loyalties are to her husband. So many marriages fail today at precisely this point. Husbands and wives fail to leave their parents. First, loyalties are not established. The creation norm is ignored and marriage is perverted. See, any man or woman who believes that first loyalties are to their parents believes a lie. A man is to leave his parents and hold fast to his wife. It literally means he sticks to his wife or he's glued to his wife. This is covenant language, a binding promise or oath. That's why we refer to marriage as a covenant relationship, both to your spouse, but also to God. In a wedding, that's why we have vows, but also questions that are answered. In the questions, each spouse is asked something like this, will you have this woman to be your wife? And will you make your promise to her in all love and honor, in all duty and service, in all faith and tenderness, to live with her and cherish her according to the ordinance of God in the holy bond of marriage? So each spouse is asked this, and they answer, I will, or I do. But notice they're not speaking to each other. They're looking forward, and technically they're answering the minister who asks them the questions. But what they're really doing is making a vow before God. They do this before they turn to each other to make vows to one another. They speak vertically before they speak horizontally. After making the vows before God, after building on that foundation, then they turn to each other and they say that they promise to remain faithful as long as they both shall live. And so it's a covenant with your spouse and with God. And so to break faith with your spouse is to break faith with God. Now, the point is this your spouse takes precedence over all earthly relationships. Who should be your best friend? Your spouse. Who is most important to you? Your spouse. Who do you defend until the very end? Your spouse. They are your one flesh. You are supernaturally and spiritually bound to your spouse in a way that you're not bound to anyone else. So practically, practically, what does it mean to leave or forsake your parents? How should this play out in marriage? Well, you are to be a united front with your spouse as you deal with your parents and your in-laws. You deal with your parents if, They've hurt your spouse, and you defend your spouse to them. It means you don't talk to your parents about your spouse in a degrading or gossiping way. It means your mom or dad is not your best friend. Now, they may have been your best friend in the past, but if you're married, your best friend is your spouse. Period. This is the case regardless of your cultural background. Now, the Bible trumps any cultural norm that we grew up with. This is the same case for your kids, though it's not explicitly mentioned here. I've heard it said before from parents that their kids are most important to them. Friends, this couldn't be more wrong. If you're married, your kids are not most important to you. They are not your one flesh. The most important person in your life is your spouse. And we treat them accordingly. Friends, if you have believed the lie that any other earthly relationship is more important to you than your spouse, you have believed a lie that will eventually destroy your marriage. It might take one year, it might take 20 years, but it will destroy and quench your marriage. Let me give us a third lie that destroys marriages. The lie is this. My spouse isn't making me happy, so I think I'll just give up. My spouse isn't making me happy. I hear a similar sentiment quoted often in my marriage counseling. Someone comes to me and says that their spouse just won't do blank. You can fill in the blank. And it's left me sad and crushed and in despair. Your a know, wife might say, well, all I ever wanted was a man to make me happy. When you hear that statement, you know this man is doomed. He's cooked because he wasn't made to be a mini Messiah. He will fail you. Now, if your spouse is your source of identity and significance, you will never be happy. You'll never have joy. Now, I realize I just finished talking about how your spouse is the most important person in your life but when you ask them when you ask them to be what only god can be for you you'll be discouraged when you ask them to do what only god can do for you you'll be in despair See, our marriages can't be grounded in romance. The movies have it wrong. Our marriages cannot be grounded in romance. They must be grounded in the worship of God. For your marriage to bring you joy, it must be grounded in the worship of God. And friends, we all worship something. I mean, if you're freaked out every time your spouse fails to give you the love that you think you deserve, it means you have placed them on the throne of your life. So what has happened is your spouse has become a functional god replacement. You're looking to your spouse to give you only what Christ can give you. What needs to happen is that Jesus has to push your spouse out of the center of your significance and security. Now the answer to all the problems in your marriage is seen in the gospel. You need Jesus to be the center of your life. See, Ephesians 5, that Craig read for us earlier, doesn't say, "Have a marriage that honors God. Just try harder. Just work harder. Just gird up your loins and do good things. Get better. Go to how to be a better husband class and improve yourself. No, instead it says, look to Jesus. Look at what Jesus has already done for you. No, friends, that enables you to be a good spouse. Jesus has to demote your spouse, and he has to be your main sense of joy and security. Now, husbands, you love your wife as Christ loved the church, not because your wife has done anything for you, but because of what Jesus has already done for you. Now, for your marriage to succeed, you need to realize that you are the biggest problem in your marriage. That your heart contends with Jesus for supremacy. That your sin is injecting toxic poison into your heart. Friends, the answer is, we need Jesus. Fellow Christian, please hear me say this if you hear me say anything this morning. The best thing you can do for your marriage today is to walk with God. It's not enough to try harder, but instead to rely on the one who is perfect in your place. This is how you get the power and the patience to stick out a difficult marriage. You pursue Jesus. If you're here and you're not a follower of Christ, you need to know this. You need to know that apart from Christ, your marriage has no hope. It's the most loving thing I can tell you today. If you're not a follower of Christ and you're married, apart from Jesus, your marriage has no hope of succeeding. This is really one of the storylines of the book of Genesis. Soon after man sins in Genesis 3, we see that marriages fall apart. In chapter 4 of Genesis, we see polygamy. Chapter 9, you have evil thoughts and evil words. Chapter 16, you have adultery. Chapter 19, you have homosexuality. Chapter 34 of Genesis, you have fornication, you have rape. Genesis 38, you have incest and prostitution. Chapter 39, you have seduction. Now we see marriage has just gone bad. See, friends, apart from God, we have distorted the most sacred of institutions that God has made. We have perverted God's good gift to us. We have sinned against the holy God in the universe, both in our marriages and in all aspects of our lives. The Bible is clear that our sin deserves death and judgment and that the only way we can be forgiven of our sin is if God himself takes our punishment. But friends, that's the good news of the gospel that we hold out each week. That Jesus, God in the flesh, he came to this world and he lived the life of perfection that we should have lived. And he died on the cross taking the sins of all who would believe. He took them upon himself. And if we would turn, repent of our sin and believe in Jesus, his perfect life and his righteousness is transferred to us and we are forgiven If you're here and you've never believed in Jesus, you've never begun to follow Christ, friend, I encourage you to repent and believe today. This is the only way to be right with God and to set an eternal destiny for yourself that includes all joy and all satisfaction. And it's the only way to handle your marriage in the way that God designed it. It finally allows you to love your spouse with a kind of transforming love That leads to true joy. Well that leads us into our third point this morning. The final phrase of our main statement about marriage. Marriage was God's idea to bring us joy. And to display Christ's love for his church. Now we come to the ultimate point of marriage. It's to display Christ's love for his church. Marriage exists For God's glory. It's designed by God to display his glory in a way that no other event, no other institution is. And perhaps even more specifically, it reveals Christ's love for his church. Both husband and wife have the opportunity to mirror Christ's love for the church in their marriage. Well, how do we see this? Well, the husband is the one who sacrifices his life in service to his wife. And a wife models Christ's submission to the Father as she submits to her husband. This is ultimately what marriage is for. It displays for all the world to see Christ's love for his church. Till death do us part, or as long as we both shall live, is sacred covenant promise. The same kind Jesus made with his bride when he died for her. Therefore, what makes divorce and remarriage so horrific in God's eyes is not merely that it involves covenant breaking to the spouse, but that it involves misrepresenting Christ and his covenant to his bride. See, Christ Christ will never leave his church. Ever. Now, there may be times of painful distance and tragic black backsliding on our part, but Christ keeps his covenant forever. And marriage is a display of that. This is the most ultimate thing we can say about it. Or if you're divorced, widowed, single, if you're in a difficult marriage or in a great marriage, either way, our hope is not in our earthly marriages. And here's the point. Some people divide history into epics or covenants, but one Beautiful way to divide up history is by weddings. Now, weddings are wonderful. I often think of my wedding day 11 years ago. It was a fantastic day. I couldn't wait for those back doors in the church building to open up when I'd get to see my bride there in her wedding dress. Unfortunately, our church broke the world record for longest church aisle they called it the Green Mile because of the ugly green carpet and the fact that you had to walk about a mile down. And I remember as I saw Gloria out in the distance walking, I felt my knees shaking, my knees rattling, my heart beating. I thought I'd have a heart attack as I watched my bride walk down slowly but surely. And she arrived at the front and we exchanged vows. We exchanged rings. And we became husband and wife. And then we went to celebrate with all our family and friends and had this grand reception. We ate lots of food. We had lots of friends, lots of family. It was a great, a grand celebration. Most beautiful day in my life. What a wonderful time it was. But brothers and sisters, my wedding day, all wedding days, they pale in comparison to a greater wedding that is yet to come. There is a great wedding day coming when Christ will return for his church. This day awaits us if we would put on the wedding ring of faith. So whether you're in a great marriage or a difficult one, whether you've been single for decades or you've lost a loved one, A greater wedding is coming. See, the Bible begins with the wedding, and in that wedding, the groom failed. The first Adam failed to step in and lead his wife in the garden, and they fell into sin. See, when she needed him most, he let her down. He failed her. But at the end of time, Revelation 19 tells us that another wedding is coming. See, the Bible begins with a wedding, but the Bible also ends with a wedding. While the first husband failed, the second Adam, the true Adam, the one who didn't fail and won't ever fail, awaits us as the perfect bridegroom. Friends, we look forward to that day when we, the church, will be the bride. And for the second time, God the Father will walk someone down the aisle, See, in the garden, he walked down, Eve, to meet Adam. Well, at the end, God the Father will walk us down to meet Jesus. In the final wedding, the bride, us, the church, will be wearing white, showing that we've been cleansed of our sin, because Jesus took all of our shame, took all of our guilt, he took all of our sin, and he has washed us clean. As white as snow. And though... There have been times when we've been terrible spouses, both to our earthly spouse and to Jesus. Jesus came the first time to win his wayward bride back. He didn't spurn us when he was nailed to the cross. He shows us perfect spousal love and loves us unconditionally until the end. This is why we love weddings. It's because they point to the perfect wedding that is coming, when we will enjoy the fullness of affection, covenant commitment, hope, joy, song, celebration, feasting and friends, of which we've experienced, oh, but a slim shadow of it here on earth. Friends, marriage was God's idea to bring us joy and to display Christ's love. For his church. Let us pray and thank God for this. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you that one day we will finally be at a home in your house, in your kingdom, married to the bridegroom Jesus. Until then, would our marriages here on earth be transformed into something that shows the world about Christ's love for the church? Would you mend the hearts of the brokenhearted here today? Would you grant forgiveness to those who are repentant? And would you glorify your son in our midst? We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.